Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For decades, Americans believed we had the world's healthiest and safest diet. We worried little about this diet's effect on the environment or on the lives of the animals or even the workers it relies upon. Nor did we worry about its ability to endure, that is, its sustainability. It's the first paragraph from, I believe, the first article in the New York Times by food writer Mark Bittman, who announced recently that he's leaving uh, that column to uh, work for a startup in uh, California. Uh, over the years, he uh, proposed some uh, ideas uh, such as ending government subsidies for processed food, beginning subsidies, that is, increase uh, wages for food workers, breaking up the U.S. Department of Agriculture, empowering Food and Drug Administration, uh, outlaw concentrated animal feeding operations. Uh, Mark Bittman has uh, worked at the intersection of policy, agriculture, health, and the environment. We're going to talk with Mark Bittman in the second half of the program. He's appearing at the SHIFT uh, conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at the People's Banquet uh, there uh, on Friday. That's the second half of the program. In the first half, we're going to talk about a growing phenomenon. What seemed like a passing fad is now a growing $800 million annual industry. We're talking about food trucks. It spawned books and apps, even last year a Hollywood movie called uh, Chef. We're going to talk with uh, proprietors of a couple of food trucks, uh, Waffle Love. Later in the program, we'll be talking with proprietors for Cup Op, some successful food trucks in Utah. Let's uh, first uh, go to a, a bit of audio we found at National Geographic. This accompanies uh, an article recently in National Geographic by David Brindley. This is a little infographic with audio uh, giving an overview of the food truck industry. Food trucks are no passing fad. Serving freshly cooked food at affordable prices, they're now part of the urban landscape. In 2014, total revenue for the food truck industry was $828 million. Low startup costs helped drive this growth. For example, the median price for a truck is about $43,000. Including truck decals, electronics, city permits, cooking supplies, and ingredients, it costs an average of $75,000 to get a food truck on the road. Compared to opening a brick and mortar establishment, though those costs can vary depending on the city and type of restaurant, startup costs for the trucks are significantly less. This allows entrepreneurial chefs to enter the industry, offering their take on today's most popular food truck specialties. High quality, reasonably priced food attracts hungry Americans, half of whom have already eaten at a food truck. Yet costs alone don't translate into success. The phenomenal growth of trucks has been fueled by the strength of social media. Trucks use Twitter and Facebook to update their locations and draw new customers. Twitter especially is sustenance for the new generation of food trucks. And tracking tweets is the best means of charting how many trucks operate across the country. In 2014, more than 5,000 trucks sent nearly 5 million tweets to reach their customers in 236 U.S. cities. With so much activity and a hungry following, it's no wonder food trucks have found the road to success. So that's from uh, a, an interesting article. You can find that by going to nationalgeographic.com and just uh, typing in food trucks. That's David Brindley's article there. And we uh, bring in from Waffle Love, Adam Terry. Adam Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So this is a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, and you have a very interesting story. I, I believe you started out as a banker. That's right. That's right. 
and then I got fired. Oh, so okay. I, uh, All right. I had to go a different direction. Uh, so did you always have an interest in food? Where, where did that come from? I sure did. It's, it's always been a lifelong dream for me since I was very young to uh, do something in food, do, do a restaurant or something. And so when, when I got fired, I, I, had, I was with my wife and three kids in a one-bedroom apartment, and we, uh, man, I was just desperate, so I just went for it. So, uh, and she writes very interesting, it's an Instagram post, and you have this on your website, which, by the way, wafflelove.com. Um, was that a hard sell to your wife? You're, you're blowing through your savings here, you've been fired from the bank, and you tell her, I, I want to I wanna get into food. <laughs> well, at, at first, she, you know, in our, in our relationship, she was not very open to me starting a... Uh, food concept because of the risk involved, which is understandable. But since I had already lost my job, she was, it actually helped her have a change of heart and she just jumped in behind me and, and helped support me all the way. It was really awesome. So it was, it was a good time, ironically, I guess, to, to try something new. <laughs> well, yeah, some, sometimes, uh, sometimes you get kicked out, kicked out of one door and, and there's another one there. You just got to work on opening up. So. Uh, so you looked into a restaurant, but then you then you settled on a food truck. Why? Uh, I, I guess this, the you. I don't know. Where'd you hear about food trucks? This is kind of a, been a growing phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I had heard about them on the East Coast and the West Coast. They were definitely trending, and uh, there weren't any in our in our valley at the time. And so uh, it was. Uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do, the right fit, the right uh, thing to uh, to step up and take care of at the time. I also, I mean, kind of like the graphic says. I mean, you can you can bootstrap a food truck a little bit cheaper than you can bootstrap a, a location, a, a brick and mortar. So, mm-hmm. the startup costs are, are a lot less. So, yep. So how? So there's the idea, but then how do you? What you you go out and find a van? What do you? What did you do? Well, that's that's a that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I found I found my first truck. It was uh, it was just parked in somebody's backyard. They weren't even selling. I bought it from them for thirteen hundred dollars, and then okay. I built a built a kitchen inside of it, and and uh, my wife painted the outside, and so we, we went for it that way. Uh, so, and then you have to decide on, on what your cuisine is going to be, right? And it seems like the food trucks, you, uh, you got to have a brand, right? You got to have a, a hook. You chose waffles. That's right. That's right. So, uh, the, these waffles are, are popular all across Belgium and, uh, in Utah County where I started, there wasn't a place that was really doing them. And, uh, so I decided I'd go for it. How'd you how'd you learn the how'd you learn about these Belgian waffles? Would you? Well, I had had them before, and uh, they're they're just an amazing treat, mm-hmm. you know. And, and yeah. they're not like uh, the typical waffle that Americans are used to. And so it was um, uh, it's something I really wanted to bring to that area. It's mm-hmm. really cool. By the way, there's a there's a, a newish restaurant in Logan called the Waffle Iron. I think they do Belgian waffles. There, I've had them. They're very good. Cool. Uh, uh, so, how does this work then? This uh, social media, I think, is a big component of this. Where where do people learn where you are? I guess you move around. Yeah, when we were first starting, um, you know, it wasn't like all like 
sunshine and rainbows. We we uh, we our first day we started. It was 13 waffles we sold. There was a lot of uh, you know getting it off the ground time. But on that first day, one of our one of the people that came up was a local musician called Mindy Gladhill, and she was like, "Man, you guys should have your Instagram handle be the same as your Twitter handle." And we were just like, "What's Instagram?" <laughs> I didn't even know what that was, but. Um, you know, you know, my wife's been in charge of the social media, and it, that's how people find the trucks. So, if you want to find where a truck is, you got to follow us. And so, I think it lends itself well to building a following and um, and uh, building a fan base, sort of. So, I'm I'm uh, clicking on your Facebook page here. Um, it's Waffle Love. In this case, uh, L O V E, um, and you got a bunch of a bunch of pictures here, and you can you can link around. Uh, to find and from your uh, website as well, you can see the schedule of, of where you're going to be. You have several trucks now, I believe. That's right. Yeah, we have four trucks up here in, in northern Utah County that cover Utah County, Salt Lake County. Um, uh, we even have one that that goes up to Ogden. Matter okay. Fact. Yeah. And then we've we've got one in St. George, Utah, and we have one down in Gilbert, Phoenix, Arizona area. What kinds of places do you park in front of? One place caught my eyes. It looks like an oil change place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to get creative because there's some places, some cities don't have laws that uh, allow you to park in certain places. And so it's really, uh, you got to be really nimble and find uh, good businesses and build good relationships with people to uh, get good spots. Mm-hmm. Now, what kinds of things are on the menu? It's 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 not just waffles, waffles, right? You do some different things with waffles. Well, we do uh, uh, the Belgian Liège waffle on our trucks, and we have uh, lots of different fun sweet toppings that you can have on that. We make our our own in-house lemon curd. You can put raspberries and cream on that. We got the classic Biscoff spread um, with strawberries, raspberries, and cream. That's our red wonder. And we have a, lots of different variations that way, but also we have a, a grilled cheese waffle that's with our in-house made garlic butter, and uh, that thing's really good. We have several different options, but uh, no matter what you choose, it's it's really good stuff. It's waffle love because we go through the time and attention that it takes to really make something exceptional. So that when mm-hmm. you bite into it, it's love at first bite, right? Mm-hmm. Really right. So what what kinds of people are your customers? Is it there is there a cool factor here? Do people just like the food? It's a, there seems to be a kind of a social aspect to this as well. Well, for sure, I you know we're re- we're really grateful to have such an awesome fan, fan base that has that is willing to follow a truck around, right? I mean, just that first thing alone, I mean, it takes a little bit more effort to go to a food truck because you you always have to look up and find where it is, right? Right. But, um, takes a little more work to get there yeah yeah it does but but it's, it's kind of cool though I, I know um there's a restaurant in logan that i frequent uh, it's called tandoori oven and it's in it's in a gas station basically so there, there's a cool factor there you <laughs> i'm going to the gas station to get some food <laughs> it's kind of an adjoining you know, building to the to the gas station uh what so is it is it growing business growing yeah I'm, well we've been open for only three years and we have, you know, a store location in Provo. We have these four trucks, those other two trucks down south. And uh, just recently we were on the great food truck race. So 
Uh, tell me about that. What I was reading about that. What what is the Great Food Truck Race? It's a TV show on the Food Network. Um, it's a lot of fun. Seven trucks start, and it's kind of like a a competition each week. Whoever sells the least goes home. You go to a different town each week, and uh, yeah, you just just look it up. Google Great Food Truck Race Season Six, and you can see some some good some good quality entertainment there. Yeah. Uh, that that sounds that sounds fun. So it's not a it's not a speed race. It's a, basically a sales race. Yeah. Yeah. How how did you do? We did really good. We were the runner up. We oh, were good. Second place. Good. Yeah. We were uh, uh, very successful every week. We we almost won every week, but yeah. uh, then in the end we we went home. So it's yeah. really really an ex- exciting, satisfying experience. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're. Uh, Sounds like you're doing what you love now. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yes, that's, I am. that's a blessing. It's, it's really awesome. Well, again, the, uh, the the place to find you is wafflelove.com. That's wafflelove.com. Uh, they're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, in fact, on social media, that's how you find where they are. And you've got trucks in various, uh, various towns now. Yep. Yep. All over. Okay. We've been talking with Adam Terry, proprietor of uh, Waffle Love. We're talking about food trucks on this part of the program. Uh, Adam Terry, thanks so much. Yeah, a pleasure. And uh, coming up in about 10 minutes, uh, a little less, we uh, are going to be talking with the writer Mark Bittman. He's uh, recently announced that he's uh, quitting his uh, regular column for the New York Times. Uh, He's uh, moving to California to uh, work on a food uh, startup. And he's author of How to Cook Everything, widely considered the new Bible of American cooking. Now his latest book, How to Cook Everything Fast. I'll ask him about that. That appeals to me. We already have an email in from Steve McIntyre. He's uh, he's giving me a picture of all of his Mark Bidman books. So thanks for that, Steve. We'll be looking forward to talking to, to Mark Bidman. Now we bring in a proprietor of uh, another um, food truck in Utah, Cup Bop. And I'm um, talking with, I believe, Jung. Welcome to the program. Hello, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing very well, very well. Uh, tell me, what what is what is Cup Bop? Uh, what do you do? What's what's the food? It's a Korean barbecue. What a simple item we actually selling to the Utah people. They will love it. They will love it. Yes, <laughs> and I've seen some videos. You you guys have a lot of fun. I think so. My mom is got kind of mad in Korea because I'm so crazy doing right now. Uh, it's, it's my life. I love it. Yeah. How did? How did? How long have? How long has Cut Bob been doing? Go, going? How long has it been going? When did you start this? It's, it's about a little over two years right now. Okay. And where? Where are you? Where, where are your trucks? We go everywhere. We go Utah County, Solid County, Bond, everywhere. And this is Korean barbecue. Yes, sir. Uh, so what, what kinds of uh, customers do you get? Uh, we get all the best customers. Yeah. One thing that really sets us apart, I mean, we love to interact with all of our customers. We don't see them as customers. Every single customer is our friend, which we also consider our family. Yeah. And, you know, if our customers, we want to be where we're at right now. All of our right. cup poppers is what they call themselves. What was the inspiration behind uh, Cup Pop? <laughs> Uh, the inspiration? Yes. So the inspiration really, um, 
Jung and Jay, they came from Seoul, Korea, and uh, they were looking around at all the other food trucks, and there was everything, like, every food truck you could think of, Italian, Mexican, Thai, and, you know, they just didn't see anything that was Korean, so that they wanted to bring the Korean culture and traditions to Utah. Yeah, that's, uh, it sounds like it's been a hit. You, uh, you guys have, what, 17,000 followers on Facebook, for example. Yeah, just on Facebook. We probably have at least over 35,000 with all of our social media combined. Right. Why did you These use... Guys have been awesome to us. Why, why did you choose a food truck? I guess you could have done a restaurant. Why, why a food truck? Because food trucks are mobile. We can get to customers faster, and we can move all over from North Salt Lake to South Salt Lake. It makes us be able to really all different Utah customers and feed them the best Korean barbecue in a cup ever. Great. And also, also food trucks, you can go everywhere. Right. To your house and my house and my girlfriend's house. We can move everywhere. And yeah. that was actually a big thing of how we got so big. I mean, uh, everything was pretty much word of mouth. We didn't really even do uh any kind of big marketing, but what we did, we would find one person and we would show up directly to their house. Oh, really? Food truck, and we <laughs> sure. would feed uh, them and all their family members, like 25 or more people. Well, nice. Just show up to their house. Yeah. Uh, how long How long were you in business before you developed a following? How, how long did it take to, to hit? So about three months. It was just all about social media, word of mouth. And we didn't do any type of advertising or radio advertising or commercials. It was just all of us spreading our love to the state of Utah and to everybody. Oh, that sounds great. So why do you think this craze, this is a real phenomenon, this food truck? Why do you, why do you think this is going on? Well, the food um, is great by itself, but, you know, people come for the whole experience. The way we interact with the customers, everyone says we're really loud and crazy, but really all we do, we just treat every customer like they are, they're our friend because they are our friends and also our family. And so, you know, they just love to come for the whole experience and how we interact with the customers. Uh, what, what do you think is uh, different? What, what do you think you did that's uh, something different than other food trucks? What sets you apart? Because... Because we had some Asians here. <laughs> That's why they like it. Very <laughs> good. We have something like we Asian I can show you. <laughs> when we should have our first customer, we always, first customer, When <laughs> 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 people want to really spice you, what's the number 10? That may be really famous right now. So they, they can expect some fun along with the food. <laughs> yes, 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 sir. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, what what are your goals? Are you you're gonna get more trucks? Where do you where do you want to spread to? We want to beat the Panda Express. I want to make the Tiger Express with the cup concept. That's okay. our final goal. As big as Panda Express. Oh, that's a, that's a big goal. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> how how many people does it take to 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 make the food and, and get it out there? It must take a lot of people. Well, right now our kitchen crew, uh, we have anywhere from like four to six people that come in every morning, and then our truck crew for each shift, we run anywhere from like eight to twelve people. Yeah. Per yeah. morning or dinner shift. Mm -hmm. Altogether, we only have about thirty-five employees right now, mm -hmm. and it's really expanding like crazy. Yeah. Uh, so at, at the, the advantage of food truck is it's lower startup cost for each truck than than if you had a, a restaurant. I wonder, could you tell me? Could you tell me about a, a pick a dish that you do, the Korean barbecue dish, and uh, tell me about that. 
So our best Korean barbecue dishes are combo mandu. It's so good. We've got rice, lettuce, and our sweet potato noodle. And you get a choice of chicken, beef, pork, and uh, <laughs> sorry. So they're just a different kind of meat combinations. But the special thing that we do with our Korean barbecue cup is that we add our Korean pot stickers mandu, which is crispy pot stickers with our vet meat and veggies inside. And it just we sauce it up with our 1 to 10 spicy sauces. So you can choose your spicy level. And if you come Monday, we actually have a tiger meat. And Tuesday is a lion meat. <laughs> Every day I have a special of me to be using it. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> never, never know. That's that's part of the fun. What about uh, competition? Do you do you um you know do you do you go places where there are other food trucks? Well, um, yes. We actually every day we meet up with uh, we do things called food truck rallies where we get together with anywhere from eight to fifteen food trucks um, oh, all yeah. around Utah. And you know that competition is always there, but we really try to work with every truck and have a friendship with all these guys. The competition is always there in our heads, but. You know, we love working alongside all of these guys. Everyone's great. And that sounds like a good idea. Then people could come to one place and have a have a big choice. Yes, definitely. So, Everyone loves to bring all their families and the kids, and you know, we cater to everybody. So tell us how how do we find how do we find Cut Bop? It's a really simple. We actually got a post on our schedule for every single day to Facebook, Twitter, Yelp. And Instagram. That's so, the only you can find in our truck. So you go to any so of those places. Okay. Yes. Uh, and it's we post our schedule every morning at about nine a.m. All right. Yeah, that's that's fun. It's a fun part of the food truck. And it's Cut Bop. C U P B O P. Cut Bop. <laughs> and there's a lot of fun with the food. Thank, thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thanks for your time. Appreciate you talking to me. We were talking with the proprietors of Cup Bop. And as you can hear, a lot of fun along with the Korean barbecue. And uh, previously in this half hour, we talked with uh, uh, the proprietor, Adam Terry, of Waffle Love. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with writer Mark Bittman. Mark Bittman uh, recently announced he's ending his column for the New York Times. He's had a, a big influence. Uh, his core message, food has the power to make or break not only our personal health, but that of the planet. It's increasingly getting out there. Mark Bittman has been part of that. He's announced he's going to join a food startup in California. I'm sure we'll still be hearing from him. His book, How to Cook Everything, is widely considered the new Bible of American cooking. His new book is How to Cook Everything Fast. We'll have a break and uh, back with Mark Bittman. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring Charlie's Aunt in addition to seminars, tours, and more as part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org. This is Science by the Slice. Synthetic spider silk holds promise as a leading biomaterial of the future with its unrivaled combination of strength and elasticity. USU biologists are conquering two major hurdles to its affordable commercial-scale production. The first is development of transgenic bacteria, that is, bacteria with the spider silk protein gene to produce plentiful quantities. The second is the discovery that water provides a safe solvent to craft usable forms of the protein into fibers, gels, coatings, and adhesives for a wide variety of uses. In the future, watch for synthetic ligaments, tendons, and skins, as well as safer airbags and lighter body armor. 
This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm going to quote uh, the first paragraph from a food manifesto for the future. I think this is uh, the first or one of the first uh, New York Times pieces uh, from Mark Bittman. Uh, he says, for decades, Americans believed that we had the world's healthiest and safest diet. We worried little about this diet's effect on the environment or on the lives of the animals or even the workers it relies upon, nor did we worry about its ability to endure, that is, its sustainability. Uh, that has changed, I think, uh, and uh, part of that is, is down to, uh, to Mark Bittman and other writers who are addressing uh, some of these issues, like ending government subsidies for processed food, uh, beginning subsidies for those who produce the food, that is, increased wages for food workers, and uh, some other things that Mark Bittman has been writing about. Mark Bittman will be appearing at uh, the SHIFT conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That is on Friday. We'll be giving the keynote uh, speech at the People's Banquet there. And uh, we welcome him to the program. Mark Bittman, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. And uh, should tell you that we have an email already from uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. He says, just so you know, there are big-time Bittman fans in the audience, and he has a picture of uh, several of your books there. So um, Awesome. Uh, so I wonder, uh, you. I was reading uh, somewhere you... You started out, you wanted to be a writer, you wrote about a range of topics, but people were responding to your your, uh, your articles about food. I, well, this, we're going back 35 years, but yes, I wanted to write. I didn't really know what I should or wanted to write about. I tried a bunch of stuff, none of it worked, and then I wrote a food piece and suddenly people were interested. So I wrote about food, and, and at that point I actually did... I mean, the funny world of journalism is that it is it is a bit of a club, and once you're in, you can kind of write about anything. So I did, for a few years, write about many different things, but, but I kept getting nudged back towards food, and I liked food. I was cooking a lot and traveling a bit, and um, I just got more and more focused on writing about food. And as I said, that was a long time ago, mm-hmm. so it's a, the process I just described took seven or eight years to fulfill and then by that time i was basically a food writer Mm -hmm. how how did the uh, new york times column come about well uh by the mid 80s or so i was freelancing and freelancing for the times and other people and um at some point uh the times decided to relaunch what was then called the living section as the dining section and they asked me if i wanted to write a column for it and i did, of course, and that became The Minimalist, which I wrote every week for 13 years, from 97 to 2010, and then um, in 2010, I pitched uh, my opinion column, which I started then and just ended a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And uh, going, you know, those last five years, it, it does seem like there's been a, a shift in how people are talking about food. You, you've had a part in that. What... Uh... And in your farewell column here, you talk about some issues that you felt like we've made movement on. What, where do you think we've made movement? Well, labor for sure. And I think um, when I wrote that first column that you were, thank you very much, quoting from at the top, um, Food Manifesto for the Future, I said one of the sad things about the so-called food movement is that it spent more time worrying about whether we're treating animals humanely than whether we're treating humans humanely. And um 
you know, food workers are one of the least well-paid, one of the worst paid groups of workers in the United States. And yet without them, we wouldn't eat. So they have arguably among the most important jobs. And people who claim to be interested in food and food production were largely ignoring those workers until recently. And, I, you know, I think um, food workers and their supporters have been instrumental, if not leadership, in the fight for 15, the, the struggle to raise the minimum wage to a livable wage. And um, I think the fact that there are people who might be self-described foodies involved in that movement is a really, really good thing. And I think that's that's the the of the last five years, that's the sort of number one um, arena in which I think we've seen improvement. We've also seen more farmers markets, more CSAs, more emphasis on local food, continued growth of organic food, way more awareness of um, most people in the United States about what a good diet means and what real where real food comes from and so on. But not a lot of that has translated into um, addressing some of the crying needs we have in in fixing the food system. Mm. Well, what what's the biggest thing remains to be done? Do you think as you do you think well, back I think to the, the, the low hanging fruit, or what I thought was the low hanging fruit, was getting um, the routine use of antibiotics out of the food supply, which basically is we we routinely treat healthy animals with antibiotics in order to improve their growth potential and to and to give them the ability to fight off diseases. The reason these diseases uh, are so threatening is because the animals are kept in such bad condition. So we, um, it's legal to to treat antibiotics with sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics um, prophylactically, that is, without any disease. And that has led to a few problems, including the breeding of what are called superbugs, which can um, cause diseases in humans that can't be treated by antibiotics or are antibiotic resistant, which the number usually used is 23,000 human deaths a year as a result of those kind of bugs. So animals can be raised without antibiotics. Their conditions need to be improved, of course, but um, it can be done. It can be done on a pretty big scale. It's done in Denmark and Holland that way, and those are those are not, they are small countries, but they're big um, pork producing countries. Um, and and that's something that could have been done by President Obama day one. He still hasn't done it. So that's, you know, to me, that's a, a bit of low hanging fruit that sadly we haven't taken advantage of. The other, I mean, the thing that I think is most important, even more important than that, but a much harder change to make is limiting the marketing of junk food to children. And um, mm -hmm. I think if you you recognize, as we all do, that children are not as rational as grown-ups, so we're not per perfectly rational either, but children do not have our thought capabilities, and yet marketers are free to sell or try to sell all kinds of junk food to kids, even when they're two years old. Um, and as we all know, kids are capable of using um, electronic devices when they're quite young, and they can use those devices to go online, and, and when they're, once they're online, there are things called advert games, and other nefarious schemes to get those kids to think that, you know, life is much better if you drink Coca-Cola and eat at McDonald's. And um, if we recognize that and we recognize that most food habits are formed when we're really young and we all can see that in ourselves, then we know that it's 
we can recognize that it's a scary thing to let marketers try to get kids to favor their foods when they're too young and impressionable to be able to make a reasonable decision about this. Yeah, this line struck me. I think it's from the uh, from that same article. Um, you said, if you support seatbelt, tobacco and alcohol laws, sewer systems, traffic lights, you should support legislation curbing the relentless marketing of soda and other foods that are hazardous to our health. This is you responding to charges of that this would be nanny state paternalism. Well, you know, I mean, uh, the government government's job is to is to some extent to protect public health. So it's if you agree with that, then you should agree with me on this, just like you should agree with mandatory use of seat belts. Mm-hmm. Government um, not only is, does it have a fiduciary responsibility to keep healthcare costs down, which would mean preventive healthcare, preventive healthcare, which would mean um, trying to make sure that our diets are better, but it also has a responsibility to us to make sure that we eat decently. And um, by not regulating these things, it's 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 not unlike the marketing junk food to kids discussion. By not regulating these things, we've created an environment where the unhealthy choice is often the easiest, most appealing, least expensive choice. If we make the healthy choice the easiest, most affordable choice, then we change everything. So it's it's really not nanny statism. It's what environment do we want to create? Um, do we want to create a safe environment or do we want to create an unsafe environment? Mm-hmm. Creating an unsafe environment is the equivalent of taking down all traffic lights and calling traffic regulation nanny statism. It is in the same way. It's the state saying we don't want people driving haphazardly and in an anarchic fashion, but we have people eating haphazardly in an anarchic fashion, in a fashion that's determined by food marketers rather than by people who know what's good for us. If you just joined us, we're talking with Mark Bittman, American food journalist, author, columnist for the New York Times. He's now he's ending that column, and he'll be uh, going to work with a, a food startup. He's uh, with us for another about 15 minutes, and you have the opportunity to interact with Mark Bittman here at 1-800-826-1495. That's the toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us, upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com is the email. Mark Bittman uh, will be the keynote speaker at the People's Banquet at the Shift Conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And that event is on Friday. Mark Bittman, I was uh, reading another uh, article that you, you, uh, you did uh, talking about the fact, at least at this point when you were writing, you felt like a lot of us... It looked like we had a lot of choices in food. You go to the supermarket, but really there wasn't a lot of, a lot of choices and not a lot of healthy choices. I wonder if the, you think that's changed. Um, I think that we're starting to see, you know, I've been an advocate. Let me, let, me, let me take a little time on this. I've been an advocate of home cooking for my whole career, which is, as I said before, about 35 years. And Really, until a few years ago, I would argue, would have argued that the way to solve a lot of our problems is to get more people cooking. And that is a way to solve a lot of problems. But it's become, because if you cook, you have control over what you buy, you have control over what you eat, you know what's, you know what you're putting in your mouth, you tend not to make gargantuan serving sizes and so on. It's, all of this is, all of this is fact. Um, What's also a fact is that a lot of people don't cook. They're not going to cook. They don't want to cook. They legitimately don't have 
the time to cook. You know, and I've had people say to me, I just don't want to cook. I don't care. You might be right. I don't want to do it. So um, for people who are not cooking, which may be the majority of people in the United States and may continue to be the majority of people in the United States, we have to find a way to make, as I said before, we have to find a way to make the healthy choice, the easy choice, the right choice, um, the affordable choice. That means changing food in institutions like schools and hospitals and prisons. That means looking at fast food and trying to figure out, can we make fast a sort of fast food 2.0, a healthy version of fast food that's appealing to people and affordable to most people? Um, again, it means making the better choices, changing the environment so that the the healthy choices, the choices that are more sustainable for both our bodies and the planet are more common and more accessible. So some of these things can be determined by municipal decisions, statewide decisions, federal decisions. Some of them can be determined by private institutions or even by public institutions like schools that have control over where they get their food from and what they serve. And some are going to be happen by industry by companies who say there is a market out there for people who want to eat better we're going to address that market and i think we are seeing in the last few years all of those things happen we see farm to school programs everywhere we've seen very very i don't want to get overly um, enthusiastic about this because it's very very small but we've seen some hospitals that are starting to um, bring in better food for their patients and we're talking you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of meals a day. Prisons, too. Millions of meals a day. Um, often budgeted at $2 per meal. And often the worst food imaginable. But all of these things are capable of being changed if the will is there to change them. And all the will takes is the recognition that by feeding people bad food, by giving people only bad food um, as an option... We're damaging the environment. We're contributing to greenhouse gases and global warming or climate change. And we're raising our health care bills. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Uh, we have a caller, Margaret in Vernal. Margaret, glad you called. Uh, go ahead. Fine. Thank you. Um, what I'm concerned about is that when you taste meats these days, they almost all seem to taste the same. It's very difficult to um, discern when you're having chicken or when you're having pork or when you're having uh, beef. And I wondered what the reason was. Thanks, Margaret, for the for the question. Uh, uh, are you noticing the same thing, Mark Bittman, or what? Uh... Well, I think that uh, the more carefully, the more closer to nature that animals are raised, the more distinctive they are. The more industrial they are, the more the way, the more they're fed the same things and treated the same way the less distinctive there are, and I think that's what um, the caller is, is perceiving. Hmm. Uh, th- thanks, Margaret. Pre- appreciate the call. You can call 1-800-826-1495. That's a toll-free number anywhere you're listening, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Of course, uh, people are familiar uh, probably with your books, Mark Biffman, How to Cook Everything, uh, a big bestseller. And... Uh, the uh, VB6, Eat Vegan Before Six. Oh, is, is this a shift you've made in, in, in your life? Yeah, but eight years ago, so it's uh-huh. not exactly recent. But yeah, I mean, eight years ago, 
I recognized some of them, I mean, 10 years ago, but it took me a while to get moving, but I recognized some of the things we're talking about, um, the impact of industrial life, livestock production on the climate and on the environment in general, the impact of junk food on our own health. And I saw all of, all of this stuff on a personal level. That is, I had gained a bunch of weight and had typical middle-aged man problems. Um, and I thought, well, what's a way to get, it's obvious that a, a healthier diet is a diet that has more plant food in it, not a vegan diet, because that seems to be extreme, but a sort of semi-vegan diet, a part-time vegan diet, if you will. And I thought, what might be the best way for me to do this? And I thought, well, you know, I can be disciplined for short periods. So why not be a, like, fanatic, vegan fanatic every day until dinner time, and then go back to eating the way I wanted to do and want to do. And that became VB6, Vegan Before Six, where every day I wake up and I eat completely unprocessed plant foods throughout the course of the day. So fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and some beans, but no processed flour, no animal products at all, no white rice, and, and so on. And and then at dinner, I do whatever I want to do. I eat meat, I drink wine, I eat dessert, I do whatever. And the results for me were great. I, um, all of my blood numbers went in the right direction almost immediately. My I lost ultimately 35 pounds over a period of about 12 weeks. And, and I've stayed on VB6, although I cheat much more than I used to, but my weight is pretty stable and all of my blood numbers have stayed in the right normal range. And, and it's, I've, I've written a couple of books about it. It's become, to some extent, the term VB6 has joined the vernacular. People know what you're talking about when you say it. And, um, I, you know, I don't think it's the only method to get more plants into your diet, but it's, it's a strategy. It's a strategy that says, I know that I want to eat better and what better means is more fruits and vegetables and other unprocessed foods from the plant kingdom and and fewer less junk food food and fewer animal products and this is a way to do it and uh this is resonating with me and you know i've talked to a lot of people who are you know making similar changes not just for personal health but for environmental reasons did you is that feedback you're getting that this is growing I meet a lot of people who are doing it. I don't know that the numbers are what we need them to be. Um, but, you know, anytime you look at uh, agriculture and health, you're looking at also agriculture and the environment. And anytime you look at agriculture and the environment, you're looking at agriculture and health. In order to have a healthier diet, we need to change the way that um, we grow and process and market food. And in order to have a healthier environment, we need to do the same thing. So um, it's a happy coincidence. Health and the environment both benefit by sustainable agriculture. So that's um, that's something to think about. We have another caller. I believe we've got you on the line, Aaron in Ogden. Aaron, glad you called. Go ahead. Yeah, can you hear me all right? I, I can, yes. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciated the topic today. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment. I'm a physician that deals with weight loss, nutrition, and uh, just heard the, uh, the speaker today. And while I totally agree with what he's saying, and I, uh, I find it abhorrent the way we market these junk foods and we call them breakfast cereals and things like that, um, I would argue that the best way to change behavior is to just simply follow our 
founding fathers and, and follow the dollar. I, I still believe that a, a junk food tax, and if we just tax these products that, that cause us to have to pay for health care and expenses down the future, that we can help to subsidize the obesity problems and things that we have, and it will make people follow um, their pocketbooks when they're making wiser decisions at the grocery store. Hmm. Oh, thanks, Aaron, for that. Mark Bittman, what do you what do you think? Junk food tax. I, you know, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, I think for years we've subsidized industrial agriculture. We've subsidized the production of junk food, and and uh, if we if we tax that stuff and subsidize fruits and vegetables instead, we'll be a much healthier society. There are a lot of people who are not in favor of this, of course, and. Um, it's a very tough sell, and you know it's not a coincidence that the only city in the United States that has a soda tax is, is Berkeley, which is obviously a unique, <laughs> a unique mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Um, but I think it's going to be demonstrated in Berkeley, as it has been demonstrated in the country of Mexico, which has both a soda and a junk food tax, that if you tax those things, then consumption of them goes down, and health improves. So if you want to improve health, if you want to improve our Longevity. If you want to reduce our health care bill, this is one strategy for doing that. You know, as we as we learn more and more about medicine, we learn that environmental factors are more and more important, and and overall more important than genetic factors in disease. Many many diseases are so-called environmental or chronic diseases, and most chronic diseases have to do. Uh, with what we put in our bodies, primarily food. So if you look at things that way and you're concerned about our trillion-dollar-plus chronic disease health care bill, this is one way of addressing that. I want to uh, go back to you. I think this is your latest book, How to Cook Everything Fast. It is, yep. Uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes we have in our mind that there's a trade-off. You can you can do fast or you can do healthy and good. I, I'm guessing that you're you're saying we can, we can have the both. Well, you know, any cooking that you do by yourself is good cooking. And it's really rare that people, if you start with real ingredients and cook from scratch, you're going to put something together that's good. Um, How to Cook Everything Fast was my attempt to say to those people who are afraid to cook, to say to those people who are, um, say, I'm unable to cook, I don't know how to learn how to cook, to say to them, this can be done quickly, this can be done easily, um, and here's the solution. And it, it is a unusual um, strategy for teaching cooking, as I don't think we really have time to go into this now, but it's um, an unusual strategy for teaching cooking and a book that's put together unlike other books. Um, and it's it's resonated. It's done very well. I think people would be curious. I don't know how much you want to say about it. What's the, You're, you're uh, joining a, a startup, food? Well, food well startup? I can't say a lot about it, but I am... As I have said, I'm joining a startup um, whose mission is to get more plant-based food into the hands of more people. And as you know, as I've said, it's the the work is to try to make the good choice the easy choice, and that's what we're going to be trying to do. And um, I think I can be much less mysterious about this inside of a month, probably three oh, weeks from now. Okay, we'll look forward to look forward to that. Uh, the latest book is How to Cook Everything Fast, and uh, it's a big bestseller, How to Cook Everything. Mark Bittman uh, has announced he's uh, he's quitting his uh, New York Times uh, column. So it went for about five years, and one of the reasons you said it's you, you've, I guess, addressed pretty much everything you wanted to. Uh, I 
feel, you know, I actually said that, and I said that a month ago, and of course I felt it when I was saying it, but now I think, no, I haven't addressed that. Okay. I, don't want to. <laughs> I, um, I really could not do this startup in good conscience and continue to do a weekly column. It was just too much, just too much for me. But I will write opinion columns. In fact, I have an idea for one now. And, um, you know, I, I will be heard from in many different arenas, I can say. All right. We'll look forward to that. And Mark Bittman will be giving the keynote address, the keynote speaker at the uh, People's Banquet. That's at the Shift Conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You can find out more information. By the way, that's happening on Friday. And you can find out more at shiftjh.org. And I believe Mark Bittman's website is markbittman.com. Mark Bittman, it's been that's, a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's the, that's the number. Okay, yep. great. A lot of good information there. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks again, Tom. See you this weekend. Bye. Thank you. Uh, tomorrow we have a, an interesting book. It's a, a collection of uh, writing. Uh, and it's called Dirt, A Love Story. So it's about the land. It's about uh, gardening. It's about anything related to, to dirt and the, the, the land under our feet. And we'll be talking with uh, the editor, uh, uh, Barbara Richardson. We'll also be talking with one of the contributors, uh, Jana Richmond, Utah Writers. They'll be in studio with me tomorrow. hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.